Well, I'll read Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12, and we'll cover all these 12 verses today. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us strength to hear what you have said and what has been recorded. Holy Spirit, open up our minds to understand and our hearts to receive what has been written. Give illumination to the words. Exalt Christ in our presence as we look at these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. By way of introduction, what I want to try to do is tie together the last several weeks and, and a few things that have been, we've discussed, and I think sort of all play in together to what we're about to study. Two weeks ago, we saw in Matthew chapter 22, our Lord was approached by a lawyer. And he, the lawyer asks questions, uh, a question considering the greatest commandment in the law. And we saw from that passage with a, a brief reference to the last two verses of Ecclesiastes that the sum of the whole matter for mankind all that God requires of mankind is to think rightly about God. We could put in that, love the Lord your God and also fear God and keep His commandments. Those commandments are summed up in that all-consuming love for God with every part and every fiber of your being and also to love your neighbor with the the self-sacrificing love with which Christ has loved us. Now, of course, we understand that one of the uses of the law is to, to show us our inability to faithfully keep it. So we look at the law and we say, well, that is good and, and holy and righteous and I cannot keep it and therefore I need a Savior. I need a, a substitute. And so we look to the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But another use of the law, and, and that first use does not set aside this other use, is that it reveals to us what God actually requires of us. In other words, it's our duty, and we are expected by God to obey His law. We can't just say, well, the law shows us that we can't do it, and therefore I'm not going to try. God actually expects us and commands us to obey His law. Think rightly about God, love God, and, and obey God. Well, then last Lord's Day evening, we looked at the spirituality of God. And we saw that one direct application of the fact that God is spirit is that we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We have to worship God. He requires us to worship Him as He has revealed Himself, lest we worship an idol or a false god. And we have to worship Him 
in obedience to the commands that He's given us with regard to worship. Lest, again, we worship the right God by means of an idol that we've created in our minds. We worship Him wrongly. We have to worship Him in obedience from a spirit that is taken up with an all-consuming love for the one true God. Now, if we... And this is what I did, and I hope this connects in your minds as well. If we consider both of these truths together, that we must think of God rightly, we must obey God, we must worship Him rightly in obedience from a spirit of love, one thing is certain. Spiritual worship and practical obedience are not optional. In both cases, even when it comes to the worship of God, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. They're not optional. We must worship in spirit. We must obey God's commands. To love God with all of the heart and with all of the soul and all of the mind and to worship Him in spirit and in truth and yet fail to obey Him somewhere else is impossible. The two are inseparable. Every time we fail to obey, it's because we have failed to truly love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind. It is from a right heart attitude that our obedience will flow. So we can, um, we cannot actually think and believe rightly and still disobey. But we can exercise some form of external obedience that conform to God's commands apart from a spirit of worship and love. We can do that. It is possible, and it is the epitome of self-delusion that we might, we might practice something that I might say, well, I love my neighbor, but in the back of my mind, I'm loving my neighbor for my neighbor and not ultimately for God. Or I, I drive the speed limit which is obedience to the law, which is obedience to God, but I do it just because I don't want a ticket. You can conform outwardly without having the heart and the mind in the right place. That is possible. Now introduce into that, hopefully not too confusing equation, the scribes and the Pharisees. A group of men, we have to admit, who were utterly taken up with obedience. They had an extremely high view of the law of God, the law of Moses, higher than any of us, I would imagine. They had actually invented their own laws, their own measures, extra laws, just to make sure they didn't even get close to breaking the law. Kind of like that little strip of grass between the sidewalk and the curb. Like, let's not just do pavement, curb, sidewalk. Put a little grass there so that if you step off the sidewalk, you're still not in the road. That's how the, the Pharisees were with their laws. They invented a bunch of laws just to keep from breaking God's law. Now, in our day, the Pharisees are, I believe, grossly misunderstood. Um, and this misunderstanding, and I'm not going to take up for them, but this misunderstanding reveals itself in the ways that Christians and non-Christians alike use the word Pharisee in our culture. Leonard Ravenhill said, when there's something in the Bible that churches don't like, they call it legalism. Well, in the same way, it seems that if a Christian man or a Christian woman decides one day that they are tired of fighting aimlessly against God's clear commands in His Word, and they say, enough, I surrender, I'll do it, I will obey, and they begin to walk in the, the self-denying paths of obedience to the Word of God, many within his or her own congregation will look at them and say, he's become a Pharisee. Or, this goes for an entire congregation, a whole church, perhaps, decides to take a stand on a biblical truth and they establish a precedent that really cinches the belt of truth. Their practices become less and less about the desires of men and more and more about the glory of God. Other churches will get wind of this and they'll say, well, they're a little pharisaical down there. They're, they're like the Pharisees. Or a man goes public that he believes in the biblical definition of sin. 
He actually agrees, and this is hard for us to imagine, he actually agrees with God that sanctification and holiness are required of those who will see God. And what do people say? He's a Pharisee. You see, in our day, if anyone dares to take a hard-line position on any biblical doctrine, any command, any prohibition, they are immediately labeled a Pharisee by Christians and non-Christians alike. You observe the Ten Commandments and not just eight? Well, you're a Pharisee. You dress modestly in public and you teach your daughters to do the same. Well, you're a Pharisee. You don't watch television or movies that depict things that you would never actually allow into your home in real life? You're a Pharisee. Or you believe in male headship in the home and in the church. Well, you're just a bunch of Pharisees. Here's the question we have to answer if we're going to be consistent. Do these accusations to these uh, situations in life actually fit the bill of the scribes and the Pharisees? Was the crime of the scribes and Pharisees that they were simply too obedient to the clear commands of God and that they expected others to be obedient to the clear commands of God? Well, the 23rd chapter of Matthew is the record of our Lord's face-to-face detailed rebuke of the sins of the Pharisees. If you want to know what was the problem with the Pharisees, you read Matthew 23. You don't find a picture of someone just being more obedient than you and say, well, that's a Pharisee because I remember something about the Pharisees. And you have to, we have to be honest with what was happening. Now, before Jesus pronounces what we, we tend to call the seven woes in chapter 23, he addresses another group first. And he, he opens in general terms the problems with the Pharisees and the scribes, and he gives them some overarching guidelines that would prevent most from falling into the same sins. And I want to open up these first 12 verses under four headings. First, he gives us some introductory remarks in verses 1 to 3. Then he lays out the formal allegations in verses 4 to 7. In verses 8 to 10, he gives some practical prohibitions, what not to do in light of those allegations against the Pharisees. And then in verses 11 to 12, point number 4, he lays out the standards of his kingdom, which we've seen many times repeated. So introductory remarks, formal allegations, practical prohibitions, and then kingdom standards. Number 1, Introductory remarks, verses 1 through 3. Before he denounces the scribes and the Pharisees, he lays out some basic principles for the rest of the audience. The scribes and the Pharisees, remember, were a part of a long-standing religious system established by God. And so Jesus has to be clear from the outset as to why he would come along and repudiate these men who were held in such high esteem by all of the people. And again, a part of a system established by God. It wasn't like they made up Judaism. God started it. God gave the commands. And a lot of their systems were a part of God's original design. And so here comes the Lord, and he's going to begin to shatter all of these things. But he has to be clear as to what exactly he's doing. Notice first, his audience Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Remember Mark told us that during this day he had been walking around in the temple, perhaps in the the temple uh, courtyard there. And Luke tells us that he had been teaching in the temple and he had been preaching the gospel. So during this day, Jesus has been walking around, teaching people, preaching the gospel. And by this time, a crowd had gathered. The Lord was teaching and preaching the crowd and the scribes then approach him while he's teaching and preaching. He fields their questions. You'll remember from the, the, uh, about paying taxes to Caesar and then uh, from the Sadducees and then a lawyer comes. So he's just been fielding questions. They have come at him while he's teaching. And right before he goes and denounces them with the seven woes, he turns back to his original audience and he he gives what I think people often overlook, a very tacit approval of the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
Now this is probably a reference that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. You'll remember just after the, the Hebrew children had come out of Egypt, Moses at that time was carrying out, if you pay attention, I think, all of the duties of prophet, priest, and king for the people. And he was executing all of these duties. And his father-in-law Jethro comes and says, you're going to wear yourself out. You can't do this. And so he delegates some of the duties to other leading men in the, in the, of the people. And so Moses' seat, that idea of Moses' seat, was a, an established seat of authority. It was the place from which God's law given to Moses was studied, was expounded, was applied according to various circumstances. So when he says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, he's saying these men sit in a place of established authority to open up and apply the very words of God. That's their job. And so, he says, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, that's important. Hear, hear what he's saying. He doesn't come up and say, oh, Pharisees, just forget everything. Don't, don't pay them any attention. I don't know where they came from. I don't know where they got their job. He doesn't say that. He says, they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe Whatever they tell you, these men sit in a place, an established position where it is their job to open up God's Word, to teach it, and to apply it. Therefore, inasmuch as they're doing their job, do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, it's obvious our Lord would not condone sinful behavior. He wouldn't say, well, if they tell you to sin, do it. He's not saying that. He's saying when these men teach the Scriptures... And they tell you what the Scriptures have to say about how to live. Do it. Conform yourself to their prescriptions and carry out the commands of God. So even in this moment when he had the perfect opportunity and takes it to denounce the wickedness and the evil of the actual Pharisees, it's not just a name, they were actual a group of men, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus, our Lord, gives no hint whatsoever that any of the commands of God were to be relaxed in any way. None whatsoever. He actually, rather, approves their authority and commands obedience to God's Word. As long as they are teaching God's Word, you do what they say. But, he says, and here's where he, he moves into the prohibition, but not the works that they do. Now, I don't think we are to assume that the Pharisees did not carry out any of the dictates of the law. I think Scripture is clear, history is clear, that they did actually in a very meticulous manner carry out the legal prescriptions in many areas while at the same time they failed to comply fully, especially where their hearts were involved. And notice what he says, do, but not the works they do for, here's the reason for that statement, for they preach but do not practice. Again, I don't think he means the Pharisees talk about what to do, but they never do what they say they're doing. I think there's a specificity to their not practicing. Their works, which Jesus is saying do not do, their works are preaching, not practicing. In other words, do what they command as long as they are teaching God's Word, but don't do it in the way that they do it. Because they preach the Word of God and they act like they themselves are carrying out detailed, specific, absolute obedience, and they're not. So do it, but don't do it the way that they do it. And in verses 4 through 7, he's going to lay out some of the, the specifics dealing with the manner in which they carried out their obedience. And, even, and, and still yet in the rest of the chapter, he goes into detail. And so in this opening statement, our Lord is clear on a couple things. The Word of God is not to be set aside. Even those... If we look at those who are teaching, the Pharisees, even in our day, 
We look at those who are teaching God's Word, and perhaps we look at them and they say, we, we might say they have glaring moral defects. That doesn't change the Scriptures. And inasmuch as they are teaching the Scriptures, they are to be obeyed. And, and if you think about that logic, you're not obeying the man, you're obeying the Word of God. So he commands his listeners to obey the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes inasmuch as it complied with the law of God. But they were not to mimic the scribes and the Pharisees in the way that they obeyed it. So that's the first heading. Secondly then, the formal allegations. Here he, he generally speaking, opens up their problem. They are, if they are men who preach but do not practice, we call that hypocrites. They were hypocrites, and we're going to see that word over and over. Hypocrites. But he opens it up, it gets a little bit deeper. It's not just broadly hypocrites. He reveals two specific categories of sin where the Pharisees were, were failing. I've called it relentless externalism and self-promotion. Two categories, relentless externalism and self-promotion. Relentless externalism. Notice what it says. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, I agree with the commentators who say it's probably not the case that Jesus is talking about the actual law. I don't know that, we would, that, that he would refer to the actual law as a burden hard to bear. He may have, there may be some nuances of that idea, but I don't think that's what he's saying. We, we have to think about how the Pharisees applied the law. In Matthew chapter 12, the first part of the chapter, they accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath. Remember? What was the problem? They weren't breaking the Sabbath, they were eating. Eating is not breaking the Sabbath. See, they didn't know that they had added to the commandment of God. Later on in the chapter, they wanted to accuse Christ of, of breaking the Sabbath. The problem is, He didn't break the Sabbath. He healed a man on the Sabbath. He did good. That's actually carrying out the dictates of the Sabbath. That's not breaking the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 15, they accuse His disciples of breaking the traditions of the elders. The problem is, again, the elders' traditions were not the law of God. Remember the Corbin Law? And we have to straighten this out in our minds and be clear on what's happening. God said, honor your father and your mother. Now, we typically just think that means obey, but there's more to it, apparently. Apparently, honor your father and mother actually goes so far as, in their old age, it's your job to care for them. Well, they had found a loophole around this where they said, well, if a man takes his money and he gives it to the temple, uses it for spiritual service, then he doesn't need to care for his parents. He doesn't need to do that. And, and so they had created this tradition where they could do one and not do the other, and they acted like they were released from God's original commandment. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving money to the temple, right? That was commanded. There were things, and we still do that. We use our finances to support the ministry of the Word in the local church. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is what men had created as a tradition, maybe have started as a good thing, had come to take the place of what God actually said. And this is what we have to understand with traditions is that there might not be a problem with tradition until it takes the place of what God has commanded to be done. Then the tradition becomes a problem. On the other hand, Matthew 15, again, he, he reveals. They're, they're setting aside an application. In their stringent efforts to exercise the external rights of the legal code, they had created rules and guidelines and I think a part of the laying on of these heavy burdens was they were laying on the people all of their extra guidelines and treated it as breaking the law when it wasn't. They weren't breaking the law. They were, again, they were eating. He was healing a man. They're taking care of their parents. They're not breaking the law. The law of God did require the tithe. It never demanded it at the cost of one's life. 
Luke 21. You remember the widow's mite? The widow gave her money. Was she wrong in giving her money? No, but they had told her, you have to give this, even if it means you die. And that was never a part of God's command. As a matter of fact, he says, the ministry from the temple, the tabernacle money, you're supposed to help the widows. The same with the church. So that's, this is what the Pharisees are doing. One commentator calls it heartless rigor. I'm calling it relentless externalism. They had no trouble creating their own additions to the law and enforcing these traditions, but at the same time they began to set aside the actual commands of God. If it would benefit them, they would relax or reinterpret a law from God, but it, they were relentless in their imposition of their own rules upon men, all in order to make themselves appear righteous. Relentless externalism. Again, if you think about these examples, well, they're breaking the, they're breaking the commandment. Well, why was it? Was it because their minds and their hearts were not taking up with worship on the Sabbath? No, the problem was they were rolling grain around in their hands and eating it. They could see. These men look, they appear like they're breaking... The Sabbath, healing a man, he, he's doing something outwardly. They had no, no concept of the inward worship of the heart. Relentless externalism, and then selfless, or selfish rather, selfish or self-promotion. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. The phylacteries were, they would write scriptures down on paper or sometimes even a piece of leather, but they would roll it up in a piece of leather or put it in a, some type of a box and they would strap it to their, their left arm or to their head as a reminder of the commands of God, the law of God. Well, they would just make them big and big and just bigger and bigger so that people would look and say, you know, this guy really likes the law. You could see it. It was something outward. Long fringes. God commanded them that they put fringes around the bottoms of their robes so that they would remember the commands of God. Well, these guys would make them really long so people would say, now that guy, he really wants to remember the commands of God. They appeared pious. They liked the places of honor. They liked to be treated with favoritism and partiality in the community for their positions. They enjoyed the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted to be set apart from their peers given seats of distinction in the assembly so that, they, that, that it was clear to everyone these men are above you. They're, you're not the same. Greetings in the marketplace. They love to be called out in public. Rabbi! And, and they love to hear that. Yes, yes, I am a rabbi after all. And they, they liked it. You know, you'd say rabbi and everybody would turn and look, oh, that's the rabbi. They, they, that made them feel good. And the term rabbi, remember, it was used for teachers, but is actually elevated a man up. The, the word carries ideas of, of Lord or Doctor or Great One. So, so to say rabbi wasn't just saying, you know, hello, Mr. whatever, like we would in school. It, it, it exalted a man above his peers. And so in public life and in religious observance, their heart's desire was to be officially recognized in their spiritual Capacity. They wanted to be set high on a pedestal for all to see, venerated by their fellow man. They wanted the glory that comes from man. Their actions are motivated by self-exaltation. So the formal allegations most comprehensively, they preach but do not practice. We would say they were hypocrites. We get a little bit more specific. They were into or... or failed in this area of relentless externalism and self-promotion. And then as we unpack this chapter, I believe what we're going to see is seven woes that are specific examples of each of these categories. They were hypocrites. They were relentless about their externalism before others, and they loved promoting themselves. We'll get to that. But he lays this out. Third heading, he, our Lord gives some practical prohibitions. Practical prohibitions. He says in verse 8, 
you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Now, think about the phrasing there. You are not to be called. This is a prohibition that refers to almost like passivity. Don't let anyone call you. Don't allow yourself to be referred to in this way. Don't allow people to call you rabbi. Now, is he saying that it's wrong for us if we wanted to take the closest equivalent in our day and say, is it wrong for us to call someone uh, teacher or refer to someone as our teacher or allow someone to refer to us as our teacher? I don't think it is. Because notice how he concludes this first prohibition. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. See, the issue is equality that's shared in Christ's kingdom as opposed to the, the way the Pharisees had constructed this system. Don't allow yourself to be lifted up to a position of superiority over your peers. Don't look at it or don't let people look at you as if you are the final word in, in religious matters. Then he says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Now this one's active. Call no man. You yourself don't call another man Father. Is this, is he saying we can't call our dads Father? No, he's not. Does this even mean that we cannot refer to spiritual predecessors as fathers? Is it sinful to refer to the church fathers? No, it's not. It's not what he's referring to. And, and if you read the New Testament, Paul uses this language a lot. Of, of father and, and child and the faith. These people had gotten into this, this practice of looking at the scribes and the Pharisees as the, the foundation and basis for all of their entire religion. And the Pharisees and the scribes liked it that way. We'll see later. They actually made disciples who were just disciples of themselves. They just wanted to, everything to be rotating around themselves. So the reference to father here is, is more like the, a reference to the founder or the progenitor, the author of spiritual life. And so the essence of the prohibition is this. No matter who you learn after or are trained under, God is the only founder, the author and progenitor of our faith. Our spiritual condition depends upon no man but upon God alone. Do not look to men to fulfill the role of God. And then he says, do not be called instructors. Another passive prohibition. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Don't let people call you instructors. Again, is he saying... We may not refer to other people as instructors. No, he's not. Remember the context. These scribes and Pharisees had allowed themselves to become, be exalted to the state of the exclusive spiritual guides of the people. That's why when Christ came along and began to teach, he was a threat. Because in their minds, we're the teachers. We teach. We do the teaching. There's no other teacher. And so the sense of this prohibition is this. Don't ever make a man out to be your exclusive spiritual leader. He's not. No matter how much we might look up to a pastor or an elder or a teacher or a husband or a father, he's not the end. He's not your exclusive spiritual leader. You have one instructor, Christ. It all goes back to the Christ. And so the summary of these practical prohibitions is basically this. Again, don't exalt men to the place of God and don't let men exalt you to the place of God. And then point number four, he lays out these kingdom standards, this, this general ethic of his kingdom, which he has pronounced many times. He states it very simply, the, great, or the greatest among you shall be your servant. Now notice, this is not an imperative, but it is an indicative. He is stating truth. He's describing how things are in His kingdom. The greatest among Christ's people will be the one who is the servant of all. In Matthew 18 and verse 4, He had said, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest 
in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 20, verses 26 and 27, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Do you think our Lord is trying to teach us something? There are very few statements that He gives this many times that are this specific. He's trying to teach us this is how it works in my kingdom. And then he says, this is how it works itself out. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whenever you seek to exalt yourself above others, God will come along and he will push you back down to where you belong. And if you will humble yourself and serve others, God will exalt you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, again, one of the most oft-repeated ideas in Scripture. Humility, humility, humility. Humble yourself, humble yourself. Serve, serve, serve. So by way of application then, hopefully you can already see the, or are beginning to see the primary factor that distinguishes true biblical Christ-honoring obedience from pharisaical hypocrisy. And it is the attitude of the heart with which we carry out our obedience. The attitude of the heart with which we carry out our obedience. Remember, obedience is not optional. You can't say, well, I don't want to be a Pharisee, so I'm going to go to the other extreme of antinomianism. That's not right either. We must obey God's commands to exercise external obedience to God's commands, apart from a spirit of worship and love, again, is the epitome of self-delusion and, and, and is actually a mockery of God. It is, as if, it is it, as if God sees the way we see. He can only see the outside. And, and it doesn't matter what's going on in my heart. It is the attitude of the heart. So I'm going to give you three practical applications that will help avoid the pitfalls of the Pharisees. Um, I say practical, perhaps I should say embarrassingly practical. Number one, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Nobody likes a person who doesn't practice what they preach. Inside the church, outside the church, nobody likes those people. It comes from here. It's, it's practical Christianity. Practice what you preach. Preach, but let's think about some of the implications in that phrase. If we were to avoid the sins of the Pharisees, the last thing we would, be, would do would be set aside biblical instruction, set aside doctrinal fortitude for the sake of being more palatable to the world. We've already seen he commanded obedience to the Word of God first and foremost. He actually lifted up and approved of biblical authority. He didn't set aside a single command. He enforced the law. He leaves no room for obedience. And then he says that you must practice, consistently practice the very truths that you proclaim. He's assuming that we're going to be preaching as well as practicing. And if we're going to preach it before we practice it, then we need to know what we're preaching. You need to be settled in scriptural doctrine, practical piety, so that you're sure about what you're preaching before you practice it. Getting more, I believe, to the point, you need to know the difference between Scripture and opinion. We need to know where exegesis of Scripture and deductions from that which is explicitly laid down and necessarily implied in the Scripture stops and our opinions start. We have to be able to tell the difference. Here's an example. Psalm 101 and verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now this would be an indicative, not an imperative. It's describing David's example. Now I would take David's example and the Spirit's inspiration of his words as an example of a godly man to be motivation to accept this as an imperative. In other words... I might, if I were preaching this, I, I might say the godly, like David, will aspire to set nothing before their eyes that is worthless, that is good for nothing. 
Now, personally, under the category of worthless and good for nothing, I would write televised sports. To me, that's worthless and good for nothing. You, on the other hand, might write The Andy Griffith Show. All right, now we're at odds. We're disagreeing with each other. For either of us to preach our specific personal application of that text and hold men to it as if it were God's law, God said, you shall not set televised sports before your eyes. Well, that would be sinful on both parts. Now, if we wanted to get together and discuss the, the, the various things, well, what type of worldview are my children learning from the Andy Griffith Show? What, what, what type of relational things are they learning? Are they learning how to be a, a husband and a wife and a homemaker? Or are they learning some things that I don't want them to learn? Th those are things I have to consider, even in what we might consider old-timey television. The same would go for televised sports. What type of advertisements are you seeing? What kind of worldview is being portrayed? What kind of people are they seeing dancing around on the sides of the field? That stuff goes into it, but we need to know the difference between exegesis and opinion. We preach exegesis, we preach logical deductions, but I can't stand up here and, and, and outright you know, forbid or rebuke or hold men to the standard of an opinion. Know the difference. And then, once you've learned the truth, you've understood the difference between exegesis and opinion, start with yourself. Start with yourself. You've got to practice what you preach. It's not make sure others are practicing what you're preaching first, but practice what you preach. You practice. Make sure anything that you're preaching is truth and that first you're practicing what you're preaching before you begin to hold others to the standard of truth. Nobody gets off of the standard. I think that's the point of Matthew 7. Nobody gets off of the standard. We all got specks and logs, and we don't, it's not that we neglect specks and logs. We just got to make sure we're judging by the right standard and that we are holding ourselves to it. I think it's the same idea in the phrase that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You need to know in your mind that there's no inconsistency between your lifestyle and your preaching. But you've got to be preaching and you've got to be obeying. Practice what you preach. Secondly, again, embarrassingly practical, and obvious, be considerate of others. <clears throat> be considerate of others. The scribes and the Pharisees would hold the people to extra-biblical standards that often put a burden on them that they were never meant to bear. For the, the Pharisees, the Sabbath rest meant, don't roll grain between your fingers. You can't do that. This is the Sabbath. For them, the, Sabbath, or the, the tithing law meant, you tithe. Whether you go home and die or not, you tithe. Did God command a Sabbath rest? Yes, He did. Did God command the giving of a tithe? Yes, He did. Did His original institution of these commandments contain the heavy burden that the Pharisees had injected into them? No. No. And any time we begin to think this way, we've gone beyond what is written. But the Pharisees, they didn't care about others. And we'll see in the weeks to come, they neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness while enforcing strict outward principles. They didn't care about people as image bearers of God. All they cared about was the air of superiority that followed them around everywhere they went. We cannot degrade into that. We must not degrade into that. While seeking to hold up a standard of godliness in public or in your home or in the church, remember, you are also weak. You were once and perhaps still are weak in many areas of the faith. And our desire as we practice what we preach should never be to simply show and display our air of superiority. We should treat others with this attitude, I care about your growth, your spiritual health. Never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Think soberly. While acting with the measure of faith that God has given you, consider the measure of faith and the maturity of someone else. 
Again, we never relax or soft-pedal truth or outright disobedience, ever. But we should think about the state of others, how we might best work to help them in their growth rather than merely getting them to produce external responses. Again, that was what the Pharisees wanted. They just wanted people to look outwardly pious. They were satisfied with externalism, happy to produce outward externalism, but they didn't care about the hearts of people, you see. And that should never be our desire, church. We should never be happy just because everybody looks real good on Sunday morning when we're all at church together and we know what we're all doing here. That's not, uh, that's not always a sign of spiritual growth. That's something as a pastor I think about often. Well, yeah, we might look great. So what? It's never our desire to produce just externalism. We have to care for people in our practicing and in our preaching. Take consideration for the hearts of the people we're trying to disciple. The Pharisees didn't do that. And thirdly, humble yourself. Humble yourself. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That should be your mindset. How can I serve their growth? How can I serve their faith? How can I come along beside someone and empty myself out in order to give spiritual aid to the health of another? Humble yourself enough to serve someone else. When you have obeyed, don't think highly of your obedience. You've only done your duty. We go back to televised sports. Why would you celebrate a touchdown? That's what you're supposed to do. That's why I don't watch it. I apparently don't understand it. If someone else has disobeyed, again, that's not an opportunity to glory or to gloat and to look down on them and say, I can't believe you sinned. No, you remember, I was once there. I probably did that same thing last, last week or yesterday. Don't gloat. Consider them. Humble yourself. If we're to exalt anything, it would be God and His holy standard, His holy word. Practice what you preach. Consider the weaknesses of others. Humble yourself. Does that not remind you of somebody? It reminds me of Christ. He didn't count the equality with God that he has, something to be clutched and waved around and say, oh, I can't do that. I'm kind to God. No, he didn't. He, he emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We don't, uh, we don't know humility. Again, when we humble ourselves, we're merely doing what we should be doing. We, we think we're doing well when we, we lower ourselves to the position of peer with other people. And here we have infinite and eternal God coming down in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he considered others' weaknesses. He would not break a bruised reed. He would not quench a faintly burning wick. In other words, he was especially tender and to those who are weak. He had the, the oversight of a father and the tenderness of a mother in one person. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He invited the weary. He didn't beat down the weary. And he practiced what he preached. Not only did he proclaim the Word of God, he is the Word of God in human flesh. You see, the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees wasn't simply that their actions were distasteful within their relevant religious climate. And the same is for us. It's not just, well, you don't want to be pharisaical because, well, people don't like those kind of people. That's true most of the time. But that wasn't their problem. They had set themselves up as the antithesis of the Christ Himself. They were living lives contrary to Christ's example. They were opposing Christ. And that's what we do when we act like them. At the same time, even in our efforts to... Practice what we preach, to be considered of others, to humble ourselves. 
If we're not pursuing those things because we have seen their beauty and their glory and their value in the person of Jesus Christ, we have succumbed to hypocrisy. We're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Now you might object and say, well, yeah, but I don't look anything like those Pharisees. That's the point. It doesn't matter what we look like. It's not what we see. If your heart is far from God, He sees it and He knows it. That was the problem with the Pharisees. Nobody would have looked at the Pharisees and said, those are some wicked and sinful guys. Everyone looked at the Pharisees as the apex of holiness. But God knew their hearts. It wasn't only what they did, it was why they did it. So then, how might we avoid falling into their mold? Well, we look to Christ. We consistently behold the beauty of the God-man. We look at His humility. We meditate on His selflessness, His submission to the will of His Father. We look at His sinless perfection. And then we, we go to Him in prayer. Lord Jesus, teach me to be humble like You were. Like you are. Show me how to be considerate of others. Show me how to practice what I preach. Teach me to submit. At the Lord's table, we by faith behold the Lord crucified for sinners. At this time, we might perhaps think about Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea or the Apostle Paul of the same order of the scribes and the Pharisees Jesus spoke to. Perhaps Nicodemus and Joseph were even there that day in this conversation, and yet we know Christ purchased them with His blood, and they're in His presence even now worshiping and waiting for us, waiting for the rest of the hypocrites to show up, the blood-bought hypocrites. We look to Christ, and we look and we think of our own hypocrisy. We've all been here. We, we consider our own hypocrisy. And we remember, at the Lord's table, we remember, Christ came to save sinners. I qualify. I've qualified. And therefore, I receive grace here. Redeemed by the substitution of His body and His blood in the place of ours. So think on these things as the elements are passed. And then we'll come to the table.